Welcome back to the Comics Course, Miskatonic University Literature Department's Remote Education Program, presenting Graphical Literature and Society and History, the Comics Course. I am your ever-suffering professor, professor, no, it's me, Professor Hamby. You're in the Xenolinguistics Department, I don't want to hear it again. Uh, and you interrupted my TA, my TA Rowan is here as always. Say hello, Rowan. Hello. You're chatty today. Um, it has been a long week. Dr. Feckett is fortunately back from Czechoslovakia. He's in a much better mood. He's taken his, over his duties again. But I apparently have gotten sick, and I'm fighting off a cold. Um, and I'm slightly concerned because my doctor prescribed me to eat tofu and salad. And I don't know, this doesn't sound healthy. That's what my roommate eats. Oh, God. They're probably a zombie, too. Um, and I've just not felt well. I've had this localized syphilis in my left knee for a while. It's just, it hurts whenever I bend it and it rains. You might want to get that checked out. I mean, I did. He recommended tofu. You might so, want to eat it, then. Oh, God. That's not actually, it's like living in Pittsburgh. It's not actually living, is it? I mean... Okay. I don't know. I've never been in Pittsburgh. Yeah, well, there's a reason for that. So, speaking of not living, when we last left off uh, T'Challa, he was no longer being drawn with big blocky fingers, which is <laughs> kind of a shame because I love Kirby's art. Mm -hmm. And he was looking at this big mass of gelatinous goo in a vaguely humanoid shape on a floor, uh, which is Kyber. I kind of wonder if this was commentary on Kirby's part about him, because Kirby and Kyber aren't that far apart. And maybe this is how he was feeling in his commentary to Marvel. So he left, and he left behind a half-finished script, which Jim Shooter had some part in reshaping for the final story. Uh, Jim Shooter was about as beloved at Marvel as, you know, the English royal family loved syphilis. <laughs> um, it, 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 it served a function in weeding things out, but the, uh, uh, disease was probably worse than the cure. So, yeah. J and Jim Shooter gave a Secret Wars, which I will never forgive him for. Oh. <clears throat> which was created, by the way, now I've talked about Secret Wars as beginning the miniseries Crossover Palooza which was determined to suck up giant vacuums to kids' wallets and drain them dry. Here's a bit of trivia for you. It was actually started off by an agreement with a toy company, and the title was determined before any plot elements were because the toy company had determined that the terms war and secret marketed well with kids. Well, that says something. Yeah. Yeah. And it just kept getting worse over the years. Anyway, so we're not up to that time period quite yet, but Jim Shooter is the editor-in-chief, and the script is done by Ed Hannigan. Now, Ed Hannigan is an interesting fellow, and I've been looking forward to today, today's podcast because these last few issues of Black Panther Volume 1 post-Kirby and then the wrap-up in Marvel premiere, uh, 52, 53, 54 are a period of Black Panther that I've largely overlooked in the past. And on rereading and preparation for the class, I, I regret that. 
there are some interesting bits in here that are really worth pointing out, as well as loose threads that were never picked up again. Except by Christopher Priest in some cases. Christopher Priest really mined the history of Black Panther for his run, especially in the later issues. But Ed Hannigan is an interesting fellow in his own right, and it occurred to me as I was thinking about this, his name doesn't come up much. He is one of those comic creators who has had a pretty big influence over the years, but not because he did any single seminal work that people latched onto and made him a rock star, but just because he was a working comic creator who just worked and worked and worked. And he started uh, at Marvel, given a job by Saul Brodsky, who was a close associate of Stan Lee and had been at Marvel many years. And he was an artist, primarily. And he did all kinds of work. In fact, his early work at Marvel was taking originally published black and white Marvel stories, or at least, you know, the original pencil work of them, and then reformatting them and relettering them for British reprints, cheap British reprints, and relettering them so that they could have the British spellings of words. What? Right. N not exactly distinguished start to a career, right? It, yeah. And, it, and he never became super distinguished. I mean, he was the guy that would always just volunteer. He did this at Marvel. He did it later at DC. He was the guy that was like, hey, you need somebody to do that? Doesn't matter how unglamorous it is, he'd do it. Mm -hmm. It was a career. And he was primarily an artist, but he began writing because, and it was the Defenders that he began writing, basically because they were short scripts. And it was like, hey, can you turn this around? And that attitude of his of, heck yeah, what the heck, I'll do my best. I'll try to be, you know, a team player here. And so the artist became a writer. Um... And over time, he wrote a fair bit. Now, his run here on Black Panther is largely forgotten. Some of his other stuff is well-remembered. As an artist, he helped create Cloak and Dagger. So so he was the I-know-a-guy guy? Right. I mean, hey, we're short a letterer. Grab Ed. Hey, we need somebody to write co cheap comic book inserts for cereal boxes featuring our characters because we have a deal with Kellogg. Ed did that. We need somebody to draw up reference pictures for the toy makers. Ed did that. We need somebody to draw to pitch draw an issue. Ed did that. I mean, he did stuff. And over the years, he he did so much stuff, some of which is not well remembered because it was, you know, product tie-ins and other stuff. But I mean he helped co-create Cloak and Dagger, which have been perennial favorites since their creation and had their own TV series. I'll be shocked if we don't see them at some point in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. He created the the chrome metallic version of Brainiac, uh, which if he got residuals on would have made him a fortune. Unfortunately, he did most of his work in a sort of work for hire era for Marvel and DC. And I mean, they've had to artists have had to do fundraisers to help pay for his multiple sclerosis treatments. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's an example of how if you aren't a superstar, you kind of have gotten forgotten, especially if you primarily worked in the work for hire era. So, and, and he's still alive. I think he's around 70 years old now. So I wanted to talk a little bit about Ed Hannigan because, you know, it's easy to talk about the Jim Shooters 
you know, they were big power players at the company. It's easy to talk about a Stan Lee and a Jack Kirby. It's easy to talk about a Carmine Infantino um, and a Frank Miller and all these other big names. But the Ed Hannigans of the comic book world are a huge part of it. Mm-hmm. So, and Ed Hannigan pitched here and wrote this. And he wrote more. So, as we come into this, we see T'Challa confronting Kyber. He ends up fighting off a bunch of the goons. And they're wrapping up the threads left behind by Jack Kirby. At the end of it, Black Panther takes the Kyber cube that has all these souls that he's basically melted down to channel himself. And T'Challa says, well... I guess I'll take it back to Wakanda and see if we can resurrect these people. And Kyber basically says, this will kill me. That's what I need. They will live forever in me, but I need that energy. I'll die. And T'Challa says, okay, I'm out. And leaves him to die. It's pretty cold. But, I mean, reasonable, I think. Yeah. And to my knowledge, that cube and those disembodied souls never came up again in any future storylines. So, picking up on next issue, issue 14, we see a much more traditional superhero cover, and we see Ed Hannigan do what Jim Shooter had wanted Jack Kirby to do, which is basically move Black Panther... Well, not... but uh, A combination of Jack Kirby and Don McGregor. Because here's one of the things that's interesting, of course. Uh... Don McGregor didn't really interact with the wider Marvel Universe much because he was focusing Black Panther and Wakanda. Jack Kirby didn't interact with the wider Marvel Universe because he wanted to be left the fuck alone. And now, as soon as we're away from Jack Kirby, we see Ed Hannigan under Jim Shooter's instruction, I'm sure, bringing him back to New York City and interacting with the Avengers, where we open, there's been a gap of several weeks, And we see T'Challa opening up a Wakandan embassy in New York City. And he's being kind of half-begged, half-assaulted by these representatives of the U.S. government who want to know what he's going to do with the vibranium and how he's going to trade it. Which is an interesting situation. And then he's visited by the Scarlet Witch, Vision, Tony Stark, Iron Man, Black... They look so different in the comics. Oh, yeah. Radically different. Especially Scarlet Witch. Mm -hmm. Although in the uh, WandaVision show, they had an homage to that classic red outfit. Mm -hmm. Didn't they for both of them? Oh, yeah. Yeah. In the Halloween episode, you saw uh, Paul Bentley dress up in that Vision outfit. A cheesy version of it. Mm -hmm. So T'Challa greets the Avengers. They talk. There are some, there's an interesting tidbit here, though. It's very interesting. And it is a turning point in the history of the Black Panther as a character. So we know before that going all the way back to Fantastic Four, when the Black Panther was first introduced, that he traded out small amounts of vibranium to scientific institutions for huge sums of money. Here... The Avengers ask him, are you going to start trading out your advanced technology? They know. 
but a pin drop. Well, no, here's the thing. Before now, they didn't have any unique to themselves. Yeah. Remember, back in Fantastic Four, it was very clear that they bought this technology mm. from the outside world with all the money they got from selling Vibranium. Yeah. And e even in Don McGregor's run, it was very clear that they were a essentially agrarian society mm -hmm. that had this sudden influx of advanced technology. Because they were selling the stuff, not because they were making it. Right. Ed Hannigan, with a quick reference to this, has suddenly changed everything. Now Wakanda has their own advanced technology that the rest of the world does not. In one issue. In an off comment that's not even part of a significant conversation. It's filler. Mm -hmm. That doesn't, isn't relevant and doesn't bring more up. But changes everything. It changes absolutely everything. Now, as the story progresses, T'Challa has another change. Now, remember, Kirby gave T'Challa telepathy and, and clairvoyance and maybe other psychic powers. T'Challa is crawling around the roofs of New York City and explicitly... Uh, uh, has this sort of spidey sense moment where he knows something weird is going on and he follows a cloaked figure to find it's his old nemesis Claw who gets shot and somehow disabled by some thugs who take his sonic arm gun. The rest of the storyline involving Claw is convoluted and honestly I don't think stands up to scrutiny. It doesn't make much sense. But basically he's trying to find some thugs to be patsies and use his gun a bunch to recharge him. By hooking it up to a commercial to to a, a, a keyboard, a digital keyboard, and playing music loud. Why Claw couldn't do this himself is absolutely unexplained, and it sets up a fight with the Avengers and all this. Claw, Claw is an old man. He should know how to do it. I mean, he built all the sonic technology himself. He's literally the master of sound. He could buy a stereo. And attach his own hand thing to it. It's weird. It's very weird. So... But as he's... As T'Challa is talking to the Avengers about how he captured Claw and followed him, he says... He says explicitly, I don't have psychic powers like telepathy. So Ed Hannigan is just writing off what Jack Kirby did there. Maybe under Jim Shooter's instructions. It's the kind of thing I could... Imagine Jim Shooter having said, get rid of that. But he does say that he has a psychic power to sense crisis moments. Spider-Man wants his power back. It's very strange. And it never shows up again, even in Ed Hannigan's writing. Although some references to it do show up indirectly in Christopher Priest's, much later in Christopher Priest's run of Black Panther, Volume 3. So... It's interesting in Ed Hannigan's run, short run, how many things are picked up and never seen again. So we get a rehash of his origin, and then back from Don McGregor's later run of Black Panther versus the KKK, we have Monica Lynn and the Southern reporter Mr. Trueblood suddenly show up in New York City. I never thought we were going to see these guys again. Yes, Ed Hannigan said... That he wanted to wrap up Don McGregor's storyline that was left hanging because, well, I mean, Jack Kirby didn't want to touch it and just left it abandoned. 
So Ed Hannigan is returning to it, and we see Wendigle again. So we get to find out what happened after T'Challa was kidnapped by the clan. And has he learned to take off his his outfit his in public? His Goram damn mask. Mm-hmm. Well, we move ahead and we see Claw's signature, you know, red elephants with wings and that kind of stuff. There's lots of fighting. There's a fun scene with Black Panther and Captain America. There's some ridiculous scenes, some sort of uh, humor at play here. When Ed has these members of New York unions holding up the Avengers. No, we won't ship that. You don't have all your paperwork. No, we're not going to finish delivering this stuff to your embassy. We need signatures. Who's the blue guy? That is the Beast. Isn't he a part of X-Men? He is one of the original X-Men. The original X-Men, as they were originally published, were the Beast, Iceman, the Angel, Cyclops, and Marvel Girl... Uh, organized by Professor X. Some people, by the way, you saw the first episode of Doom Patrol. Mm -hmm. The TV show Doom Patrol is largely based on Grant Morrison's Doom Patrol, although they went back and used original characters for the show. Mm -hmm. Um, Many people believe that the X-Men was a ripoff of Doom Patrol, Mm -hmm. that Stan Lee got news about what they were doing at DC and stole the idea. Mm -hmm. Which it does look like it, just from that first episode that I saw. But yes, the Beast was one of the original members of the X-Men. And he later developed a serum that he was trying to use to enhance himself, and it turned him blue and hairy. Mm -mm. And they did that to make him more visually distinct. Uh, And I can't remember. He's been a member of the Avengers, the Defenders, a bunch of different groups. He went through a period where I think he was animalistic and lost intelligence. He's been a normal-looking human again. He's been through a lot of iterations over the years as a comic character. Uh, Marvel Girl is the character that was later known as Phoenix. Cyclops is very divisive among comic fans. Some love him, some hate him. Uh, The Angel later lost his feathery wings and got metal ones and then got feathery ones back and had sex with like 700 women or something. I don't know. Um, Yeah, he he was very popular. I really thought for sure they were going to turn him gay at one point or bi, but they haven't yet. Hmm. Um, Marvel, call me. I can make things happen in your titles. (laughs) I'm just saying, you don't have any pan characters yet, and the angel's begging for it. (laughs) So, all this stuff is happening. Uh, People are fighting. The Vision's fighting. The Beast is fighting. They're okay fight scenes. Uh, I'm not going to fault Ed Hannigan's writing there. But where things get weird again is after all the fighting stops and... uh, Uh, Claw seemingly dies because True Blood and Monica Lynn I can't remember True Blood's first name but I mean that's a great name, True Blood Mm -hmm. they show up at the Wakandan embassy and Wendigle is watching and says and now that I have found the panther the panther shall find death I can't take him seriously with that outfit nobody can (laughs) That, that outfit is just awful so this was issue 15. There was supposed to be an issue 16. There was even a cover drawn for it. But it never happened. It went ahead and got canceled immediately. This was cover dated in May. And then the story continued in a Marvel premiere, but that wasn't until December. Now, if you read editions of this that have been redone digitally or reprinted much later, such as in the Marvel Masterworks Volume 2... There will be a little box at the bottom of that last panel that says, To be continued in the pages of Marvel Premiere. 
That wasn't actually the plan at the time. They've added that later to make it look like this was the plan all along. So we still don't get to find out what happened? No, we do. Because we get to Marvel premiere in December. Uh, I think I said earlier it was 52, 53, 54. It's starting with 51. 51, 52, 53. My apologies. So they basically have taken the story that was originally intended for Black Panther number 16 and have broken it up into three parts for Marvel premiere, which was essentially an anthology title. And I guess they either needed the space or they really did want to finish it up. I don't know. But T'Challa gets out of his limo and has an argument with a bunch of workmen then Wendigle attacks, and now we get to another interesting point. Ed Hannigan adds another element here to the Black Panther mythos, and he and he repeats it several times over the course of these Marvel premiere appearances. He talks about studying Wendigle's attack patterns and compensating, and this happens in several other occurrences during Marvel premiere, where... Okay, so when Black Panther was introduced in Fantastic Four, he was essentially a playboy chieftain. Mm -hmm. Don McGregor emphasized the idea of him as a man and a chieftain trying to live up to a role. Jack Kirby was interested in him as an adventurer. Ed Hannigan here is the first one, and this is the thread really picked up by Christopher Priest and follows very strongly through Todd Nahisi Coates um, and other writers of the Black Panther as a genius. Mm -hmm. Now, he hasn't been an inventor yet in these. He's worked with technology, but not developed it himself. But here we have him as a strategist, as a thinker, as somebody who's several steps ahead in planning. And that is added new here. And is important. And becomes a dominant theme in later representations of the Black Panther including influencing people that have written him before and come back, like Don McGregor's later representation. So here in this issue, we have T'Challa meet True Blood and Monica Lynn, and he doesn't recognize either of them. And what we find out over the next few issues is that the clan wiped his memory and dropped him back off in Wakanda. And he slowly over time regains his memory, but he does not remember Monica Lynn. Now, I have several issues here with this. Mm -hmm. And I think this was poor writing on Hannigan's part. First of all, how much memory got wiped? Because he didn't know Monica Lynn for like a few days. He knew Monica Lynn for years and years and years. So how much of the Black Panther's brain got affected? I mean, this is like lobotomy, right? Or did just go in and take away her? What's going on here? It seems weird. You'd think this would leave gaps. Two, he's been back to Wakanda since. He left Wakanda to go to America with Monica Lynn. Nobody, like, say, Taku. And Taku, by the way, is a regular character in these pages. Mm -hmm. Not Wakabi, but Taku is. And Taku's a friend. Taku was around Monica all the time back mm -hmm. in Wakanda. At no point did anybody, including Taku, go, so how'd it go in America with Monica? You went. You lived with her family. You were investigating the assass the death of her sister. What happened? And don't you think something would have happened when he went, huh? You would think at least ask how she's doing, because he's her friend. And there would be... Well, and he left for this reason. He left. He's a monarch of a country who left and went somewhere else. You would think that a big memory gap would be a big deal. 
Mm-hmm. Big, big, big deal. Oh, and they also establish here, by the way, that somehow Wendigo is flying using stolen Wakandan technology. What? We don't see anybody else in Wakanda flying around in spandex, but... <laughs> That's for the best. <laughs> um, look, I'm just saying Ed Hannigan wasn't a great writer. I really appreciate him trying to tie up Don McGregor's loose storylines, but it wasn't a great job. Still, I appreciated him trying. Mm-hmm. I really did. So over the course of the next few issues uh, of Marvel Premiere, we have Wendigle assassinated by a sniper. Basically, every time T'Challa gets near to capturing somebody, they get assassinated by a sniper. That weird red-robed figure that T'Challa went into Monica's memory as she's telling a story and encountered it, and later he encounters it in person, but then it dissolves because it's a part residual of Monica's memory and the hatred of people and their fear, and Mm -hmm. it's very vaguely defined. And it wouldn't bother me that it's a very fairy tale kind of thing, except nothing else thematically is like that here, so it's very weird and distracting. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Anyway, we find out that the clan that the panther faced previously in the south was actually originally a cult up north, and they came down and formed a splinter group of the clan that wasn't actually the clan, and it was all about land grabs, which was a thread started in Don McGregor's work, that it was about money, just about money, nothing else. Uh, And using things like hate and fear for the purpose of profit. Ah, I don't know where I've heard that before. Right. And the storyline wraps up. Now, if you are reading the Marvel masterpiece, I will note also they include one additional story. It is, to my knowledge, the first time in publishing, although not chronologically within the universe, that Storm and T'Challa meet. Uh, Somebody attempts to assassinate Storm She finds out it's somebody that she and T'Challa both have a history with, and it's established in canon, and this will come up again later, that she and he met when they were both young teens. I forgot about this detail. Yep. And it's a quick short story that goes into them hunting the guy down, and they find he's already dead. But it's an interesting little bit. And there are later appearances of Storm, and of course during the Reginald Hudlin time period, Storm and he married, although they later divorced because mutant stuff. Because he can't keep a girlfriend, apparently. Well, there was a small problem where she is an X-Men and she wouldn't renounce the X-Men, but the X-Men killed millions of Wakandans. That is a problem. Now, you could put it other ways, but Namor was involved murdering ridiculous numbers of Wakandans. And she's like, well, we shouldn't be so negative about this. And it's like, uh... That's not how murder works. You you know, with your connections to mutants and mutants claiming credit for this, a lot of Wakandans are starting to turn against you already. You really should renounce all this right now? And she's like, ah, you know, I don't think I'm prepared to do that. And he's like, bitch, I'm dropping you. So As he has every right to and should. Now, I'm drawing on memory here, but that's my memory from reading it. We'll see if my memory matches when we get back up to that part of the run. So, there we go. That takes us through that era. Now, I do need to do some checking. I I don't recall, in terms of publication sequence, 
which happened next. Now, there is Volume 2 of Black Panther, which is a four-issue miniseries, which involves South Africa. Uh, there is the crossover with Storm. I'm pretty sure that was later. I'm pretty sure the later Don McGregor Marvel premiere stuff was later. So I think the next one might be the four-issue miniseries, but I'm going to check. I will mm -hmm. find out. So I don't know exactly what we're doing for our regular class session next week, except that it will be Black Panther. Now, we are at the half hour mark, so this is one of our shorter class sessions, mm -hmm. but I think that's okay. Yeah. It's good to get to the meat of stuff and move on. Mm -hmm. um, I do encourage people, feel free to contact me at Pondering Comics on Twitter, at P-O-N-D-E-R-I-N-G-C-O-M-I-C-S. That's Pondering Comics. You know, if you're, say, an art major and don't know how to spell, hey. you can just use those letters. Um, I, I'm sorry, I know. Look, I joke about art majors. Clearly, art majors have to know how to read and write because they create those little things that go underneath their things they display in galleries where they bullshit and claim that when they rolled around in paint on the canvas that it represents the struggle of humanity and that's why you should pay them $10,000 for what they did while drinking root beer <laughs> schnapps. That's only some artists. No, that, 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 yeah. Uh, Oglethorpe sold, sold for some ridiculous amount of money a jar with a crucifix in it that he pissed in and called it Piss Christ and then wrote a little pamphlet about its symbology so that people would pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for it. He sounds like a genius to me. He sounds like a fucking con man. <laughs> is it really Piss con Christ. Is it really conning people if people buy it? And yes. He, and he shows that, that what is, it is. That is the definition of a successful con man, that you get people to buy it. Yes. 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 Do I need to say yes again? No. <laughs> All right. Speaking of conmen, you asked, I'll fill in a little more podcast time. Mm -hmm. uh, you asked me the other day about the 90s. Mm -hmm. What was really bad about the 90s? Mm -hmm. uh, okay. For those of you that weren't alive in the 90s. Thank you. Be glad. It was a shitty decade. Mm -hmm. um, especially in the comic book world. So for superhero comics... There were a lot of problems in the 90s. And I'm going to go over this very brief because I'm tired and I, you know, I'm going to go lay down and try to sleep off this cold. But the 90s were a mess. They were just a mess. It started really in 1989. Now, the, the first big superhero movie was Richard Donner's Superman 1977. It made a buttload of money, but people treated it like an anomaly. But when Tim Burton's Batman came out in 1989... People started going, money? Money? You have money? Batman has money? And the merchandising from Batman, it was ridiculous. You could buy expensive Batman smoking jackets and shit. What are smoking jackets? Exactly! Exactly! <laughs> so, now this... Things didn't happen immediately. You know, It this really didn't hit full steam until Marvel's Iron Man film more than a decade later. But in the 90s, we saw more Batman films, which were awful. We saw Men in Black come out, which a lot of people don't even know is based on a comic book. It was Wait. by Malibu Comics. Wait, that's based off a comic? Yes. A black and white comic book series published by Malibu, Men in Black. I did not know that. 
A lot of people don't. And to this day, I mean, there is something... I saw a list the other day of like 40 comic book properties being adopted into movies right now. Mm -hmm. Now, and a lot, some of them people don't know are from comic books because they're not, you know, superheroes in tights. A lot of people don't know that the Netflix uh, series Old Guard is based on comics by Ed Brubaker. Mm. Uh, no superheroes in it, but it's based on comics. Anyway, then we went on to Blade and other stuff in the 90s. Now, I'm not saying that the 90s were bad because comic book movies started getting made. I'm saying the 90s were bad because this made Warner Brothers and Disney and others start looking at this and going, oh, there's money in them there, Hills. <laughs> now, Disney didn't buy Marvel until sometime later, but any time you start having that kind of money involved, uh, the creative process is always going to become less important than the merchandising and editorial control to ensure sales. Mm -hmm. That's just the reality. The other reason, another reason the 90s sucked was mullets and pouches. Mullets became everywhere. Pouches were everywhere. Bandoleros were everywhere. Dr. Fate, for Christ's sake, had a mullet and a bandolero What's of a... sharpened art. What's a bandolero? Onks. Um, sharpened onks is what I was going to say. Anyway, a bandolero... Have you ever seen, like, the movies where, like, a guy has this almost, like, belt-like thing across his chest and there are shotgun shells in it? Uh-huh. That's a bandolero. It's a band for holding ammunition. Ah. Uh -huh. And everybody had mullets. And, and a lot of this was kicked off by this obsession with style over substance. Now, th this really originated at Marvel, but DC went down this road some. Not as bad as Marvel, but they were guilty as well. Uh, and it really got kicked off by a couple of people, especially Rob Liefeld, uh, who was doing like X-Force and stuff like that. And he drew these extremely stylized, these super hyper muscular guys. By the way, how, if anybody out there likes Rob Liefeld's art, please get medical attention. You probably have a tumor in your brain. And you need to, at the very least, recognize that people actually built with those body proportions would not be able to move. They'd just fall over. They, they would just be, like, flailing around like, I can't hold up the weight of my pectorals. <laughs> um, and nobody needs that many pouches. Yes, Batman has a cool utility belt. But not all heroes need one billion pouches. Especially on belts that will fall down and trip them. Just get some pants with pockets. This is why women aren't allowed pockets in their clothing these days. Because Rob Liefeld used up all the conceptual pockets in the universe. And women's clothing designers can't grab the platonic ideal of a pouch from the cosmos. Because Rob used them all up. And... and there's a special place in hell for him, then. Right. And, and then there's uh, um, Todd McFarlane. Mm -hmm. Now, I love Todd McFarlane's art, but when people began buying everything Todd McFarlane and they decided to make him a writer, even though he clearly did not know how to write, mm -hmm. I mean, his early written stuff was sheer nonsense. Mm -hmm. It was babble. I mean, you could, I agree, have gotten a thousand frogs with a thousand typewriters to have produced the content. Um, Frost? but his art was gorgeous. I mean, when I was a teenager, I had a Todd McFarlane Spider-Man poster in my room. Mm. 
I mean, I love, loved his art. Still love it. I love the style. But the, the decision that style mattered more than substance was a mistake. Now, DC didn't really go down that particular road because they still believed in writing. But they were guilty of things like, and this title will live in my back of my brain forever, Extreme Justice. This was the age of extreme sports, extreme energy drinks, extreme hair curlers. <laughs> I mean, everything had to be extreme. Can't we all just calm down? Um, and of course, when everything's extreme, nothing is. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the nature. So they had to have extreme justice. A Justice League made of extreme members. Like the Blue Beetle. <laughs> I actually don't remember if the Blue Beetle was a member of it, but... Yeah. What kind of is that? The Blue Beetle. Actually, the Blue Beetle has a fascinating history going back to Charles, Charles, Charlton Comics. But we don't have time for that right now. What is Charlton Comics? Charlton Comics. They were one of the few companies, other than the big two, Marvel and DC, that made superhero characters back in the 60s. And the Blue Beetle was an iconic one of theirs. Uh, eventually bought out by DC... Uh, Ted Cord was a Blue Beetle for a long time. They're at Dan Garrett, I think, was the original Golden Age Blue Beetle. Um, Ted Cord is Blue Beetle, had a long involved history, has largely been paired since the days of Justice League International with Booster Gold. In fact, people have loved the Booster Gold Blue Beetle pairing so much since the days of Justice League International when Keith Giffen used them for humor together. They're always joking off each other. Mm -hmm. uh, in the infamous panel where Batman socks and knocks out Guy Gardner. You can see Blue Beetle and Booster Gold standing there laughing their asses <laughs> off. And I think taking pictures. Oh, well, those were those two in that panel? Right. I mean, they, they are the jokesters. Um, and, in fact, they're currently publishing a series called Blue and Gold about them. Mm. Uh, where nothing is taken very seriously, which is beautiful. <laughs> so, yeah, everything had to be extreme. And th that was awful. And it was also the decade that led to Marvel having to declare bankruptcy, in part because they decided to print money by printing variant covers of everything. And I do mean everything. There were titles that had 14, 15, 16 variant covers. They put gold embossed covers. They did a black cover for the death of Superman that included a black armband. They did co variant covers that came pre-bagged, where opening the bag destroyed the cover of the book because of how things were positioned. So if you wanted to read it, you needed to buy at least two. What? Yes. And we can go on and on and on. Hologram covers and some of the hologram covers were cool. And, and, and Gen 13, first issue of Gen 13, 13 covers. Why did why does someone need that many covers? Nobody does. People speculated on them thinking that this was like free money. I'm going to buy this book for 2.99 and then it's going to be worth a fortune later. I think that pre-tax you had to spend something like $39 to get all the Gen 13s. I'm just pointing that out as a example. We're talking about they did this over the decade with hundreds and hundreds of times. Now, and both companies were guilty of it, although Marvel was worse than DC about it. And it eventually caused to a... It led to a crash. There were comic book stores that basically went out of business because of this. 
when the speculators finally realized how badly burned they were by it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then some of them lived for a while on Magic the Gathering, but then that collapsed for a while. And I, I will tell you, comic book card stores shut down all over the place. It was mm-hmm. a bloodbath. Because they had two products. People got burned on all the variant covers for comics. And then Magic the Gathering uh, stopped being popular for a little bit. Boom. Lots of small businesses shut down because of lack of diversification. Which is one of the reasons why when you go into comic book stores now, you see them do so many different things. Because they don't want all their eggs in two baskets anymore. Mm-hmm. They learned from that crap. But they're trying to still put a lot of eggs in Magic. Mm, we can debate that. I mean... They want to make their money off it. Mm-hmm. But I don't think they're investing in it the way they used to. Game stores are a slightly different deal. Okay. So, and let's just... And there are co- combined comic book game stores, but... Yes, there are a lot of game stores where Magic the Gathering is a major revenue stream for them. But that's also a reality. People go in and buy Magic for draft nights every week and stuff. Mm-hmm. You don't need to buy a new D&D core book every week. Mm-hmm. So, I mean... That, that's a reality of the economics there. Um, so, yeah, but when people finally realized that, you know, uh, I'm not making up this number here, but when six million copies of The Death of Superman are printed and people are buying 20 copies each, in some cases 30, 40, 50 copies, and they're thinking, well, in 20 years I'm going to sell this for a fortune... Well, it turns out that everybody that wants a copy already has one. Do they not know how basic economics works? Supply and demand. I can. I have seen the death of Superman with the black cover in pull boxes for a dollar now, which is less than the cover price it was printed at. That's because when you have multiple covers of the same right. thing, it was worth less. I know. It's just ridiculous. I look, I know you got burned on all those Spider-Man covers, man. But, you know, that's not my fault. You love the jumpy stuff. You really should have known better. Yeah, I know. Look, I know the image guys did it too, but that doesn't forgive them. Um, anyway, I think that's going to wrap it up for today. We'll be back in a few days with another midweek. Ah, did we ever publish the Green Lantern episode we recorded? I don't think so. I think we're um, saving it. We, we might drop that, especially if I'm still not feeling well. Uh, also, I have a rant to go on about comics and their prices these days. And some of the weird speculation about their value that's built up this sort of artificial collector's market. That I don't, I don't think it's bad for comics, but it does have some negative side effects. Okay. So we'll drop one of those, and whichever one we don't do, we'll do another week. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm going to let everybody go. Again, feel free to contact me on Twitter, at Pondering Comics. Uh, you can find my email, too, but honestly, I don't check my email much. So Twitter's the best way. All right. And start sending in your assignments on time. I'm tired of waiting. I know. My students are slackers. Slackers. If I see you in the hall, be scared. She's been making friends with the dogs out in the quad. I would be afraid, guys. I mean, like, she's, like, hardcore. They, like, lick her palm now. It's kind of scary. I thought they only did that for Dr. French. All right. Keep reading comics. Bye.